0: Welcome back to Season 2 of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients, with me, Liz Tucker. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Richard K. Burt, a pioneer in the use of hematopoietic stem cell transplant, known as HSCT, to treat multiple sclerosis. He performed America's first stem cell transplant for MS. The approach allows the patient's immune system which has been attacking their body, to reset itself. While the treatment is only suitable for certain MS patients, it can be life-changing. The US's National MS Society says there's growing evidence that HSCT may be highly effective for people with relapsing, remitting MS who meet very specific characteristics. The Society says it can greatly reduce and potentially even end MS disease activity in some. But the treatment is not without its risks, and patients have died. However, as Richard argues in this podcast and his new book, Everyday Miracles, Curing Multiple Sclerosis, Scleroderma, and Autoimmune Diseases by Hematoboietic Stem Cell Transplant, not all types of cell transplantation are the same, and it's vital that both doctors and patients Understand the different approaches because the type of stem cell technique can both affect the risk and effectiveness of the treatment for both MS and other forms of autoimmune disease. An effective treatment for MS is desperately needed. Currently, researchers are also looking at the use of high level vitamin D in the treatment of the condition. While current drugs, known as disease modifying therapies or DMTs for short, may slow the progress of the disease, they can't stop it. But before we get to Richard's interview, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find out more, you can sign up to my Substack account, which is liztucker.substack.com, go to my podcast website at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com, and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. And if you'd like to financially support the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this. So even a small amount a month makes a huge difference. And you can provide support at patreon.com slash you or via my website, which, as I mentioned, is whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Many thanks. Now back to the interview with Richard. Dr. Richard K. Burt is a Fulbright Scholar, Professor of Medicine at Scripps, a tenured retired professor at Northwestern, and CEO of Giannani Biotechnology. In addition to performing America's first hematopoietic stem cell transplant for MS, Richard also carried out the first procedures in the US for a number of other autoimmune diseases too. He was recognized by Scientific American as one of the top 50 individuals for improving humanity. An outstanding leadership. Here's his interview. So Richard, thank you very much indeed for joining the podcast today.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: So what made you start to think that stem cell transplants might potentially be a treatment for autoimmune diseases, in particular MS?
1: So it began about 35 years ago. I was a fellow at Johns Hopkins on the transplant service, transplanting leukemias, lymphomas, multiple myeloma, things like that. For which transplant was considered standard of care, the patients were coming back after transplant, and they had lost their immune response to childhood vaccines like measles, mumps, rubella, tetanus, and so they were re-immunizing so they develop a good response to the vaccine.
0: Basically, the process they'd gone through with the stem cell transplant had killed off their mature immune cells, so they had no memory; hence, right. they had to be revaccinated with these vaccines.
1: Right. So the lymphocytes you develop mostly at a younger age tend to stay with you throughout your life and confer some sort of immune response or immunity to a future infection. And the transplant actually ended up getting rid of those. But nobody had recognized that you could use it for an autoimmune disease. So I actually said to my attending, Professor William Burns, that we're revaccinating these people because they lost their immune response. And then I said, That means we could use this in autoimmune disease and I remember him looking up at me, his pupils above the rim of his glasses, saying, yes, you're right, we can do this multiple sclerosis. And so then that's how it started. So the concept
0: was, with patients with MS, their immune systems are attacking their own bodies. So the hope was you'd be able to reset their immune systems in the same way that you've done for these cancer patients.
1: Yes. I would go back and forth between the NIH and Bethesda, Maryland and Hopkins I think 40 miles down the road every morning and every night late working on this, started working on it in a basement lab and we began in animal models of MS. We did it early in the relapse remitting phase, it really worked. It shut it off, the mice got better. If we waited until they'd had several relapses and they got progressive MS, it did not work. It wouldn't work. You know, 90% of MS begins as relapse and remitting over a few years to many decades the vast majority transition into a neurodegenerative disease called secondary-progressive MS.
0: So the timing of this therapy is important. Although there are a few exceptions, largely it needs to be done while patients are still in the relapsing remitting phase of MS.
1: Right. So unfortunately for MS, there's no biological marker. Perhaps the best marker is that there's oligoclonal bands of immunoglobulins in the cerebral spinal fluid. Incidentally, Although that's the closest to a marker for this disease, it's not confirmed that that is a biological marker. It would be the closest. But about eight years after a transplant, those normalize. They go away eight to 10 years after a transplant. Multiple sclerosis, again, at onset, some people are primary progressive. That's predominantly a neurodegenerative disease from onset. And I wouldn't use an immune-based therapy for that purpose. But 90% relapsing remitting and at onset some of them they have a very very rare attack and i wouldn't do transplant for them either because they have a relatively benign course others have a more aggressive course and unfortunately the drugs don't really reverse it or stop it it just slows it but then they eventually continue on and develop progressive disease in which no current therapy really works so when we did this immune-based therapy We saw it did work in the relapse-remitting phase of EAE, which was a model for relapse-remitting MS. When we did it in the progressive phase, which is a model for secondary-progressive MS, it did not work. And that's because you're now predominantly neurodegenerative. So the timing of this therapy is very important, as well as the conditioning regimen, because a big common misunderstanding is that the stem cells are therapeutic. They're not. They're just a supportive blood transfusion. And so it's the conditioning regimen used that determines toxicity and efficacy.
0: And this conditioning regime is the combination of drugs, radiation, and chemotherapy. Yes. Which is used to kill off the disease causing blood or immune cells before the stem cell transplant.
1: Yes. There are two big categories one is myeloblative, and the other is non myeloblative. I use non myeloblative, I've always argued for that. And the key is just finding the most effective but least toxic regimen for the patient because myeloblatives are designed to cancer to kill the stem cells where the leukemia is. And the destruction of the immune system is just an unwanted side effect. In transplant for autoimmune disease, you want to reset that immune system, get rid of the old, bring in a new one. You don't want to get rid of the stem cells. That's why you want to do non-myeloblative. And uh, I think with time, and the results i published, people will come to realize that focus on non-myeloblative. In fact, the Europeans are now focused on non-myeloblative, just like me. It's the Americans and the Canadians that are focused on these aggressive myeloblative regimens. And that's why I wanted to get this book out so people knew they had options and they could make a choice. And that people need to understand these regimens are different. And, and just because you know one, one regimen has this significant toxicity, it doesn't at all mean the other will.
0: The approach you use only eliminates the disease-causing blood or immune cells. And this more mild approach means the patient will actually recover normally without the infusion of stem cells, although you do give a transplant to speed up the process.
1: Yes, you don't have to give the stem cells back to recover because the stem cells are resistant to the conditioning regimen you design in non-myeloablative and you recover just fine. You give them back because you recover about four days earlier. So it's a supportive blood product that gets you out of the hospital sooner. So it's a prudent thing to do, but you don't have to do it, unlike myeloblative, and it's safer. But even within the non-myeloblative, there's different doses and different regimens that impact on toxicity as well as efficacy. I make the analogy that the regimen you select is like how astronomers look at planets in distant solar systems, because you want to find a habitable zone, that is a planet not too close to the sun and not too far away, a planet where life can exist. It's the same with the condition regimen. You don't want it too strong. You don't want it too weak. And it's finding that right uh, regimen for each disease. And it's different for each disease.
0: Because although you started doing this in MS, you've since extended the procedure to other autoimmune conditions.
1: Yes. I've learned that the regimen we need to use for like neuromyelitis optica much rarer than MS. MS in Europe and America, is about 1 in a 1,000 people, the prevalence. Yeah, neuromyelitis optica is 1 in a 100,000. We have to use a more aggressive but still non-myeloblative regimen for neuromyelitis optica to get these long-term persistent remissions. But with MS, uh, the regimen we've been using of cyclophosphamide ATG works very well. And in fact, while we report routinely in the field of transplant out to five years, drug companies usually just one year or two years, there's a real absence of long-term follow-up reports on patients from these drugs. In writing this book, I ended up talking to people I had treated 20 years ago, long as 21 years ago, went into remission, no more drugs, improved neurologically, and have continued to do very well with no new attacks, no further neurologic decline, having great lives.
0: So what's the success rate for the procedure?
1: You know, we do have relapses, about 23 to 25% relapse, but those are usually within the first uh, three to years, maybe five years. It's rare after five years to see a relapse. I had one at about 10 years that I know of. I've realized I really need to sit down and make a really long-term paper of how they're doing beyond 10 years. Certainly, this therapy has, although not without upfront risk, has significantly changed the history of this disease. Can we say cure? I never use the word cure, even though I put cure on the title here because I want to catch people's interest. And then you can start wondering, well, in MS we don't have a biological marker, nobody defined a cure, but after 10, 15, 20 years of no evidence of disease and you neurologically got better and stayed better and you're on no drugs, you can start thinking, well, maybe we ought to start considering that term cure.
0: It's difficult, isn't it, Richard, using the word cure, I suppose, because the risk is that people will accuse you, Of overhyping it. Did you think about the pros and cons of using the word cure?
1: Yes, I did. And that's why I clarified it within the text that despite putting it on the title, I never used the word cure. And I just wrote what I had said here that uh, there is no definition. So we can't say, technically use that term. And I haven't in the past. But at some point, when you're dealing with these persistent long term remissions where you got better and stayed better with no treatment that's going beyond. A decade or two you have to start considering that maybe you've achieved something with this therapy.
0: We tend to use the phrase stem cell transplantation and if people think about it for MS they imagine it's largely the same process. But from what you're saying, the conditioning regime, which is the part of the treatment where the patient's immune cells are killed off, can vary hugely and it can be more toxic, less toxic, but presumably it can also affect the likelihood of success.
1: That's absolutely all correct.
0: So is there any chance of standardizing
1: that? I don't think anybody's ever really going to compare the two regiments. First of all, in transplant, there's no patent, there's no money, there's no license for the people who developed it. But this is so much hard work just to develop and get out what you've done with your regimens that I doubt, because there's absolutely no financial reward, anybody will compare the two, but what happens through publications and experience with time, a regimen starts to settle out, that's the preferred one. I think that's what will happen and that's actually kind of happened in the field of cancer when they developed these aggressive myeloblative regimens for cancer. There were different ones that eventually kind of settled out for one particular regimen being predominant. I think that is what will happen here. So that's an
0: important question for a patient to be asking if they were exploring getting the treatment, whether it's in North America or Europe.
1: That is correct. And not only the patient, but doctors, because I have found doctors think of HSCT as one thing. And the reason this confusion arises is one of the reasons why this field has trouble taking off is that neurologists are not trained in transplant. So they think of it as this thing for cancer, and they're all the same hematologists who do transplant are not trained in MS. So they're just going to take whatever type of patient and neurologist will case for them. And there's a whole bunch of patients who shouldn't be used in. Mostly, if they're referred, it's because it's secondary progressive already. It's not going to help them. So don't do it.
0: So if a patient comes to see you and say they've got MS, what's the procedure that they would go through? Can you sort of talk through the different stages of the process?
1: So the first thing is they will be connected to a study nurse who will send them a screening questionnaire that they complete. The study nurse brings it to me and I look at it. From that questionnaire, the reason we set that up is to try to figure out if they're really secondary progressive or relapsing or admitting. And a lot of them we can screen out right away. If they're secondary progressive, we're not gonna be able to help them. And then we don't invite them for an evaluation. The reason we do that is to save them the money, time and expense, because most of the patients come from all around the world or all around the country.
0: If you have an inflammatory form of secondary progressive, there may still be some benefit for you.
1: Yeah, so you're not relapsing, remitting, and then the next day secondary progressive. It's a slow transition where you can still have some relapses in between. That's called active secondary progressive. Basically, within the last year, if you have a new lesion, gadolinium-enhancing lesion and MRI, we'd consider you active secondary progressive. Secondary progressive means you're slowly declining without an ongoing relapse, clinically obvious, and that slow decline is very gradual. So you could see your doctor every month for a year or two years, and then after a year or two years, the doctor will realize you're worse, but he won't know from thinking back and looking at its notes when that really happened. It's a slow, gradual decline, unlike an acute attack where something suddenly happens, and then you've switched into this neurodegenerative form. But in any event, back to the original question, the nurse sends the forms, but if it does appear they're a candidate, then they're invited out and a test are set up and some blood work and a MRI at the facility and, and then they're evaluated and we get a, a baseline. And also, we get their old MRIs from the outside on our system and look at our new MRI and compare it with the old ones over time to get an idea if there's still inflammatory activity and new lesions going on in the MRI besides the history talking to the patient of attacks and so forth. And, From that can determine whether or not we can help them. And then it's a process of putting in for insurance. And insurance can be a real battle. Sometimes it can take 10 months, multiple appeals, paperwork sent in, uh, conference calls, discussions with the Uh, insurance company, medical director, their committees, appeal committees, you know, it's an effort to try to make sure that this can be covered. At the end of the day, most insurance companies will approve this. And I think with more publications coming out with major medical textbook, with the laybook, it'll even force their hands more to do this. Um, And it's kind of unfortunate we have to feel like we're forcing their hands because we're actually saving them money. But I
0: suppose the thing is, the upfront cost is that much bigger, which I suppose is the figure people look at. Typically, Richard, what is the cost for doing one of these procedures?
1: So using this regimen for MS is $100,000, which is the cost of any of these DMTs for one year. So that's a neurologic term, disease-modifying therapy. It's all the pharmacological drugs out there that are given to patients. But after this treatment, you're off the DMTs, and since 75% seem to maintain these long-term remissions, you're saving, the insurance company is saving $100,000 a year thereafter. The frustrating thing is getting them to understand that, because I do think there's a tendency to look at the quarterly profit. And so if you have a big, bigger upfront charge, instead of looking at several years down the road.
0: And I think there's this particular issue in North America, because in North America, doctors and patients pay more for drugs than they do anywhere else in the world. So for example, in the UK, in the NHS, we now have a number of small centers providing stem cell transplantation. And under certain circumstances, the NHS will fund that for MS patients.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And this has arisen in the UK because I ran my initial randomized trial, missed One of the centers running it was in the UK. And another center was in Sweden, in Uppsala, another in Sao Paulo, the other was here in America with me. I was the head of the study and uh, it was strongly positive for transplants. So then the UK went on with another study just for the UK itself. And that's going on at several individual university hospitals throughout England.
0: So if I'm a patient and I'm then admitted, can you talk me through the procedure from harvesting my stem cells, the conditioning regime I'll go through, and then giving me back my stem cells? What's the full procedure?
1: Yeah, before going to that, I want to bring Hmm. a point where you talked about the American system. Every system has good and bad. One of the advantages of an insurance company is you can talk to a person or committee. If you're talking to someone who takes responsibility for that patient, and then if you can get them to see that person as a person instead of some bureaucratic rule, you can cut through and you can help your patient. In a socialized government system, I've been in many of them throughout the world, you don't have that option. People follow a bureaucratic rule from the top. There's no way people sitting at the top can understand the most recent advances or the individual circumstances of a patient and what's best for them. Nobody takes responsibility for the patient, and that system then fails. In getting that patient that treatment. And believe me, government systems makes decisions based on other factors in that individual sitting in front of them. And I understand that. So there's good and bad with both systems.
0: No, absolutely. And I wouldn't for a moment deny that the NHS doesn't have a huge level of bureaucracy. I suppose in the UK, one of the things that drives our treatments is the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, otherwise known as NICE, which will make
1: guideline recommendations. And you need someone that represents that patient. That someone has to be that doctor. And that doctor has to be free, not an employee of that system, of that hospital or that system, so that he can be free to really fight for that patient. That's really important. And when you have a strong socialised medicine structure, doctors are purely employees.
0: I suppose what I would say is, in my experience, for doctors speaking out against whatever particular medical consensus there is, whether they work for the NHS whether they work for profit-driven hospitals or nonprofit, they still come up against huge issues
1: with people who run
0: those organizations
1: objecting. they, They are not free to fight for their patient. And you need a doctor not to be an employee to fight for you, to help navigate and fight for you to get through what's become these very complex systems that have their own agendas and wheels turning that's so important and that is being weakened. Medicine is a profession but healthcare is a business. And if you rob doctors of that profession and just make them an employee in that business, they can't fight as a professional for that patient because there's a tremendous conflict of interest on them then being either penalized or not being rewarded by that system. But back then to the question of what happens after the screening, if they appear to be a candidate, they're brought out, they get an MRI, they're evaluated, there are certain basic physical tests you do to establish the neurologic function, that is EDSS and so forth, the standard scales that are used to say, to communicate where they are in in their MS in terms of disability. And uh, hospitalization, it's about five days of conditioning regimen and then usually day 9 or 10, sometimes as early as day 7, the earliest we had after the stem cell infusion can graft in your discharge. So it's a total of about 14 to 15 days in the hospital. Then when you go home at your local facility, we'll have blood drawn once a week uh, for a month, and then once every two weeks for two months, then we stop all blood work. And we used to ask you come back at six months, one year, and yearly. I think the six-month evaluation is nice to get to see there's a Doing so much better, but it's probably not necessary anymore. We can just do the one year and maybe even skip the two, do a three and a five year, and then maybe, you know, a 10 year or something.
0: And what are the risks for a patient going through this procedure?
1: The risks are dependent upon the regimen and the disease and patient selection. But predominantly with the regimen I use, cyclophosphamide ATG. Uh, the number one risk you have to worry about is infection that gets out of control or another underlying disease that would make the transplant too complicated. And those both of those could result in mortality. The other is uh, infertility and that's age dependent. So many patients who have been 26 or younger still get pregnant. By age 32 virtually nobody will get pregnant anymore but you'd always advise everybody to uh, either oocyte bank or sperm bank or whatever but you also have to advise them don't consider this to be permanent to infertility you'd be surprised you got pregnant later and say why didn't you tell me that could happen but it's really age dependent but we recommend everybody for uh, gamete storage oocytes or sperm just in case they want children in the future with the particular regimen i use there's about a two percent chance of itp idiopathic thrombocytopenic that occurs late and it occurs usually within two years late, latest so was three years after transplant. And if your platelets suddenly drop, you get easy bruising, you may brush your teeth, notice a little blood or whatever. If that ever happens, we tell them get immediate CBC, check the platelet count and uh, send it to us. Really instruct people to do that and most of the time, actually the platelets are normal, they are just a little nervous, but it's the way to pick it up. Now, that's the side effect of the drug, drug Lemtrada or Campath that was developed in England. It's commonly used to treat MS now. Alentuzumab is the other name of it. It's all the same drug. Campath, Lemtrada, Alentuzumab. It's the same drug. It gives ITP and it gives a higher rate of ITP than the transplant regimen I use, much higher. So what they do, what neurologists do is they check monthly uh, CBC, but I, I found that to really be a treatment for the neurologist, not the patient, because I've had a patient come to see me at one year follow-up. Everything's normal, we always check the counts and the platelet counts are normal. And then a week later, the patient called me and said, I'm getting easy bruising. I said, go get an immediate CBC, call me. And the platelet counts 10, which, you know, normal platelet counts like, 250 to 450,000. So that's very low where you can have a spontaneous intracranial bleed and a problem so we we can treat it and reverse it. It's not going to become a chronic problem, but if you don't do that, you something terrible could happen when you could have a serious bleed and die. And it's relatively specific for MS. We tend not to see that with other diseases. Uh, and then, of course, the final is a secondary autoimmune disorder. And what we tend to see is the development of hypo or hyperthyroidism in a small percentage of patients that I think is probably related to the immune reset with this regimen. And whenever a patient comes back, we always check thyroid function and caution them if you know you ever feel lethargic or cold intolerance or to immediately just get your thyroid checked. It's not an acute emergency by any means, but it's something that, that we check and recommend them to follow.
0: Now, what HSCT can't do, it can't regrow nerves or repair the damaged myelin sheaths that surround the nerves. So what sort of level of improvement do you see in patients who haven't relapsed?
1: Yeah, so it's stunning that they get better because it's not a neuroregenerative therapy. What happens is once you stop the immune attack, the brain's able to repair itself up to a certain point. After a certain point of damage and chronicity of damage, it's not going to repair itself anymore, and you're going to have that persistent nerve degeneration that's secondary progressive MS. But the stunning thing is, and we showed that the volume of brain lesions actually decreases after transplant in a randomized trial, whereas the volume of diseased brain increases on standard drug therapy. So it's amazing, this one-time treatment, you get less brain lesions and you get recovery. But there does come a time when the brain is incapable of repairing itself. I also think younger individuals, middle-aged and younger do better because of the ability for more self-repair. Now, one of the things not studied in MS by anybody, but it should be in all these drug companies, they don't do it is atrophy. It's a more complicated MRI analysis. That's why it's not being done. Where it is done, they know that as we age, our brain atrophies, we lose volume at a very slow, but you know, zero pressing right? Yeah, depressing, yes. but. If you have MS, that rate of brain loss is much faster. And so the question is, do you revert people back to the normal baseline after transplant? And do drugs change that rate of atrophy? So it's kind of funny. MS, when I first started the concept of transplant back in the 1990s, the attitude of neurology was, well, you have an attack, we'll see you in a couple of months. It's still hard to get in to see a neurologist in America. A lot of times there's eight months before they can see them. Not quick in the UK either. But, you know, when you have a heart attack, they realize that time is heart muscle. But it's the same with the brain. That's not being recognized. Time is the brain itself atrophy. And the more you can do to stop that and prevent that, the earlier, the better. And so I think that has to soak into the field of neurology as well. But of course, everything's a risk-benefit, and people have died from a a transplant, and you can never make that risk zero. I think in my last paper of Journal of Neurology with 507 patients, non-myeloblative regimen, it was 0.2% mortality or 0.4. One patient died before transplant from a sickle crisis, but in the hospital, and one died during the procedure from Legionella in the water supply of the hospital. Totally unexpected, but these things happen. Hospitals are dangerous environments.
0: The MS Society in the UK, they say that HSCT, hugely promising treatment for MS, but also very intensive. It means it can come with risks, and there are a lot of factors to consider. It can reduce relapses and stabilize, even improve disability for some, but it can't regrow nerves or repair damaged myelin. If you already have a lot of nerve damage, as in progressive MS, the chemotherapy can do more harm than good. Some people have died as a result of HSCT. Since 2005, one person in about every 330 who has HSCT has died because of it, and this risk can increase for people who are older or who have a higher ETSS score, a measure of your level of MS disability. Do you think that's sort of fair?
1: I think where things stand, that's fairly fair, fairly accurate, yeah. I think some of these real aggressive regimens may increase cerebral atrophy. That's also why I argue against them. And uh, you want to use the non-myeloblative, not these intense myeloblative regimens. That statement I just said isn't proven. It's kind of a from the field being here at the head of it and seeing what everybody's doing. That's a sense I've gotten. Actually, there was a study out of Canada using the most intense regimen that's out there where they did show for two years after transplant, despite stopping inflammation and new lesions, there was more atrophy than before. And then it plateaued out. So you could argue, well, that's just continuing atrophy from the prior act of MS. Or you could argue, no, that's from the transplant itself that caused some damage for those two years. And then there was a plateau because you'd stopped MS. So I think some of these regimens... Uh, that are more aggressive could do that. That's why I always argue you want to use this more safe regimen because then people mix all that together. And that's what the MS society does. They mix it all together, all these regimens. No, the toxicity depends on the regimen you're doing. So does the efficacy. And they're much cheaper when you do the non-myloablative. Believe me, when a patient comes to me, I read them the riot act about all potential risk complications. They have a consent approved by an IRB that they have to sign of all potential complications. But every drug has complications out there that have killed people.
0: It's about giving patients informed consent, whatever procedure they're going through, whatever medication, surgery, procedure. Agreed. So, Richard, just going back to my question that if somebody has relapsing, remitting MS, I appreciate you can't give medical advice over the podcast, nor would I want you to, but are there certain things that would be likely to make them a candidate or less likely to make them a candidate for the procedure?
1: Yes. So we want relapsing remitting. And basically, if you're on one of the first generation medications, that is Copaxone or Interferon, two attacks within the prior year, confirmed attacks. Or if you're on any of the other DMTs, one attack within the prior year. Or if it's an upfront diagnosis, but there's so much inflammation and so many lesions in the brain at diagnosis, that a neurologist looking at them would want to start one of the top aggressive uh, DMTs such as natalizumab or ocrelizumab or Lemtrada, that you could get a transplant. And then finally, if you're active secondary progressive, you'd still do it. Those are the, the candidates that we would take for a transplant.
0: And in fact, your frustration in the book is someone who's coming from the United Arab Emirates, who you hope to be able to treat earlier, and then f- for various bureaucratic reasons it's delayed. So. You do do the transplant, but you say you, you can't know what might have happened if you'd been able to do it earlier.
1: Oh, I have no doubt. I've sat at the bedsides of patients for 25 years. If we'd gotten there earlier, it would have been even much more recovery. This isn't unique to that one patient. Many patients are coming to us where they weren't aware or weren't offered this therapy, and now they're secondary progressive and we can't help them. I can tell you I've seen, it's not out in the literature, but I've seen many patients treated with ocrelizumab, and I've talked to other neurologists who've been treating them for years, and it stops new activity on the MRI, so they think they're doing good, but they enter secondary progressive.
0: So they think they're still at the relapsing, remitting phase, but they're not.
1: Yes, because on the ocrelizumab and these anti-CD20 B-cell therapies, it's stopping new inflammation in the brain, stopping new acute attacks, But they stay on it and they end up with progressive, secondary progressive disease and then transplant doesn't help. And that's very different than transplant where it's this one-time therapy up front. You not only stop new disease activity uh, and relapses, but you have no more progression. And in fact, you actually get better and then stay better.
0: So after a transplant, would you expect a patient to come off all their MS medication?
1: Not only expect, we stop all MS medications.
0: Would there ever be exceptions to that?
1: No, but I want to clarify, like some people are on certain drugs that aren't used to treat MS, but are supportive care drugs, like uh, an antidepressant or something like that. Those things they may stay on, although we try to wean them off and you have to be careful weaning antidepressants because if you suddenly stop it, you can become suicidal. It's one of the side effects of those drugs. But there are some supportive care drugs you're on that you may still be on that you have to be weaned off of. But in terms of any DMT or immune-modifying or immune-suppressive medications, no, those are all stopped, completely stopped. They are not restarted unless you relapse. Unfortunately, sometimes we've had a few patients, they go see a follow-up doctor, there's no new activity, nothing, but they'll start them on a drug and the patient doesn't get back to us and then we find out later. So we try to instruct patients, don't start a new drug unless you have an active relapse, uh, if there's an issue, contact us and we'll talk to your local physician. And that's because local doctors are just used to putting them on drugs. But that that doesn't happen often, but it has happened and it's kind of like, oh, they're not understanding why we did this and that they don't need these drugs. They'll even have an MRI, it doesn't show anything new, there's no attack, but they'll put them on a drug anyway. And so that's a process of educating the medical community as well as the patients to be aware so that doesn't happen. But the patient will be trusting, and boom, that happens. So that's happened occasionally.
0: Now, is it ever a possibility if somebody relapses that you would redo the procedure?
1: No, I don't want to. We put them on a DMT, and they basically do better on the DMT than they had done before. But there were two patients who had very active MS when they came to us, and they got fundamentally better. I mean, they like were in a wheelchair, and then they're up running. And uh, they had relapsed, one at two years out, one at five years out. And I didn't want to do the transplants, but they basically twist your arm and refuse to take any DMT. And you can't let them sit there with their brain on fire. So we did the transplant and they both did really good. They both stayed in remission for longer periods of time than from the first transplant. So uh, now that's only an end of two. So, you know, what would happen as you do more patients? I don't know, but it was very comforting to see that they're you know, still in remission and in a longer remission than from the first transplant.
0: Obviously, this is something you've devoted your life to. You feel incredibly passionate about it. Does it annoy you when you, you see other doctors criticizing it or saying, hang on a moment, slow down, or it's been overhyped, or we're not sure it should be used for all of these conditions? Well, yes and no. I think
1: scientific clinical criticism is a healthy thing. But when it becomes personal, then it's not healthy and it's not appropriate. Because obviously when you do something new, when you have a new idea that nobody's else done, you're going to be open to criticism. And a part of that is a healthy process. When people make it emotional or personal, then it's destructive and it's it's not the way things should be done. But professional arguments and discussions, how to prove things and risks and why it's working or isn't working. Those are completely appropriate and should always be there.
0: My experience of having talked and interviewed many academics over the years, it's surprising how personal supposedly academic conversations often become.
1: Well, there's truth to that. Unfortunately, don't let it become personal and look at the academic part of it that needs to be debated and discussed. The goal at the end of the day is to help society, help the patients to change the natural history of a disease.
0: And one of the things that I found was really interesting in the book, you mentioned that you thought now it would be much harder to go out on a limb and do the research you did because the trouble is when you're working outside a particular field, you weren't working in neurology where most people have done work in MS. You were doing stuff outside that and you think today with the increasing specialisation of medicine that would have been harder
1: to do. Well, I do kind of feel like a dinosaur. <laughs> I'm one of the last dinosaurs, you know. When I was originally trained, I was trained that as a good physician, you need to be a triple fat, that is a good clinician, a good in academics, and good in research. And that's kind of vanished over time. You have people that just do research, and you have people just doing clinical care that have become employees in institutions, you know, have some people doing teaching. But in my training, it was teaching research clinical care. That was the triple threat. That's what everybody wanted to be. I always followed that. You develop your own protocols. People don't do that anymore. They just do some drug company protocol or what everybody else is doing. I developed my own protocols and pathways. So you really need to take the time. And it's about two years to design your protocol, talk to other experts, read all the literature, figure out the best group of patients, figure out what you think is the best regimen. And then, of course, you can collect the data and you learn from that. To tweak it and make it better but that's generally not what's done anymore because doctors are becoming employees and institutions look at your rvus which feed the bureaucracy above and there's no rvus there's no money generated in you know that two years of developing a protocol but that's how i succeeded
0: and can you explain what rvu is for any listener that doesn't know
1: it's a way of documenting your billing you know how much billing you're doing In in America, it's a term that's used, but costs are going sky-high because nobody's being encouraged to represent their patient's best interest financially. And that's never to be taken to say financially is more important than medically. But if you totally ignore it, what you have are these runaway costs that are going on in society or at the top, just blocking treatments that should be given. So doctors themselves need to be empowered with that knowledge work for the best interest of their patient. But that means they have to be professionals, they have to be independent professionals, not employees. And the trend worldwide in medicine is that all the finances are taken care of by someone else, not the doctor and not the patient. The system is running out of control. It's like if you take your car in to change the spark plugs tune it up and they put in the most expensive, brand new Lamborghini spark plugs from Italy, that are you know 50 times the cost of a regular spark plug, you're going to say, forget it. I'm not paying for that. If after phase three randomized trials, it was expected that cost-effective analysis compared to other treatments out there be undertaken, especially by big pharma, that would really, I think, help open some eyes.
0: And I was just going to say, with MS drugs, it also depends what we mean by effectiveness, because how are we measuring the success of a drug? Are we looking at improvement of neurological disability? No. Are we looking at quality of life measures? Most of the time, not. So it all comes down to what do we even mean by the word effectiveness?
1: No, you're exactly right. The traditional approval for drugs depends on uh, decreasing the number of relapse or decreasing new lesions on the MRI compared to nothing or compared to the weakest drug out there. It has nothing to do with improving neurologic disability or reversing neurologic disability are improving quality of life. Whereas in transplant, those are the endpoints that I've published that are are so fundamentally different than drug trials. And the reason why drug trials don't do that, if quality of life or reversing disability was the endpoint, they'd all show failure. And that's because none of them improve quality of life. Now, some of the more recent ones, like uh, Lemtrada and Ocrevus natalizumab, do have a very small improvement in quality of life, FS36 by one or two points. But that's a statistical number, it's not of any clinical relevance and the reason for that is it's well known in the SF36, which is probably the most vetted standard quality of life across all diseases, is that you need a five point improvement for the patient to notice a change in their quality of life. Transplant gives 15 to 25 point improvement. Drugs either they don't report it or it's one or two points, the most recent and aggressive immune-suppressive DMTs. It's one or two points, which for the study mean for any individual patient is totally meaningless. So to the patient, it's no improvement. You need at least five-point change to have an improvement. And so you want in your study group to see more than five-point. And in transplant, if you select the right group of patients, it's 15 to 25 points. But that's what I mean by cost-effective. Cost-effectiveness not only includes cost, but quality of life.
0: Now, you've touched on the fact that for a lot of neurologists, stem cell transplant is not at the forefront of their mind. And one of the things that interested me was that you said for at least the first decade after treating MS patients using stem cell transplants, neurology journals declined publication, but you were able to publish in hematology or transplant journals. Ironically, of course, those journals won't be read by neurologists. It's true. That's a problem. <laughs>
1: Well, you've got to break through a field, and it's just being persistent, and uh, that's what it takes. Um, So you're dealing with highly subspecialized people devoted their life, so they're going to naturally be skeptical to someone who doesn't have that pedigree coming in, claiming these results, and this isn't, I think, unique. It absolutely is not unique to neurology, and it's not unique to medicine. It's out there in all walks of life. And uh, you do have to be persistent and you have to recognize that you're not doing it for the congratulations of other people. You're doing it for a different reason. The reason for me is I had this passion that I felt this could really help people with MS. And I wanted to see it through to, to help the patients. But obviously, if your goal is to get admiration from your colleagues and get a big office or whatever, you're not going to take this approach. But if your goal is to fundamentally change an approach to a disease and the way you think about it, you're going to meet that type of resistance, but you get a different type of reward. So I would never change what I've gone through for someone else. To actually have an idea and to see a thought become reality and change other people's lives and change the people they interact with and then change the future, there's nothing more rewarding than that. That's something that's rare Nobody would ever trade that. Uh, You do pay a price, you do pay a cost. So for me, the rewards of doing it far outweigh the difficulties that one must surmount. I always say, when a student or young doctor asks me what to do, I always tell them follow your passion, follow your heart. You have one life to live.
0: And do you think the future of this, Richard, will mean that we'll be using stem cell transplants for? A wider range of illnesses.
1: Well, I've shown five autoimmune diseases where we've perfected regimens with phenomenal results. So I think this will continue to grow and expand. Actually, I have another passion that developed about 10 years ago I've worked on, proved in animal models with IPS cells, where we can actually reverse degenerative diseases that occur with aging or trauma and also even reverse aging to a certain extent in animals. So it's my new passion I want to take forward. But my first child, Transplant Autoimmune Diseases, you know, it's like it's in its teenage years. So I want to make sure it goes forward the right ways. I still am involved in that, but I am also trying to focus more and more in developing my IPS technology for what's now the next big chronic disease. Autoimmune disease is chronic disease. This shows a way to convert it to a one-time reversible illness uh with long-term remissions yes it may relapse i don't know maybe at 25 years everybody relapses but we're seeing one decade to two decade long now remissions so an improvement but the next big area to tackle is all the degenerative diseases of aging because you know it's so depressing to see an older person that had a life just declining in front of you so we've developed this new technology been working on for 10 years uh, in animal models. We have seven patents on it using IPS where we can really repair any aged or degenerative organ in an individual. So that's where I want to go next. But because I want to see this field continue in the right direction, I'm still spending time seeing patients and teaching. And that's why I wanted these books out, that medical textbook last year, and this laybook for patients. because this isn't for me. I don't want people to have to come all over the world to see me. I want to be able to get this treatment now at the local facility. It's not a dream. It's a reality. And the data is there.
0: We'll have to get you back on the podcast, Richard, to, to talk to talk about that work. Just going back to stem cell transplants for a moment, one of the things that skeptics have said is that some centers are now using it for two wider group of illness, things like autism, for example. And I wondered what your reaction was, because obviously autism isn't an autoimmune illness.
1: Look, I am personally skeptical about the use of mesenchymal stem cells, is what people are using for autism. But many people were skeptical of me at the beginning. So, because I don't work in it, I haven't focused on it. I actually don't work with mesenchymal stem cells, I only work with hematopoietic for autoimmune and with IPS for now we hope for all these disorders related to aging or trauma i'm unqualified to really discuss that because the devil and the angels in the details and so when people talk about my work even though they may have many degrees after their names and big titles they don't do this work and they're when i listen to them they make mistakes and i'm like whoa i don't want to be making those mistakes you know i can say yeah i'm personally skeptical of what you brought up here with autism but I wish them well. Whatever research they're doing in that area, whether it succeeds or doesn't, publish it so that we all learn from it. You learn from mistakes, uh, often more than from success. As a matter of fact, when I first started transplanting MS, my advisory committee from NIH really forced my hand to start in secondary progressive MS where my animal model said it wouldn't work but nobody had ever done it. In terms of risk-benefit and so forth, we did and it didn't work. So I put in the... I published it and I put in the title failure in the title because I want people to know don't do it there. Yet everybody started doing it there. To me, even though it was a failure, I put in the title failure. It was published in blood, which is the top hematology journal. But to me, I'm very proud of that publication because it's true. You know, you need to learn from that, but it's a lesson people have had to relearn over and over and over in this field because the way it's set up, neurologists don't know transplant, transplanters don't know MS, neurologists are going to do all these drugs till nothing works, and then they send the transplant, and transplant's not going to work. But you learn from failure, just, just publish it. Having an idea of trying to help someone and trying, that in and of itself is success. Failure is if you don't report those results that they did fail or they did succeed and learning from it. So
0: transparency about all results, negative and positive, incredibly important.
1: Right, and one of the problems is journals don't want to publish negative results, but negative results are just as important as positive.
0: So somebody who has been critical of your work is Professor Paul Knuffler, a professor at University of Cal Davis School of Medicine in Cell Biology and Human Anatomy. His lab works on stem cells and cancers. He says that you've done innovative cutting edge research, your work has really promised to be game-changing, but that he's not convinced that the trials at Northwestern were transparent about negative outcomes. In his view, they were overhyped. What's your reaction to that?
1: Well, I can tell you how this came about. He contacted me by email. He's saying he's talked to a patient that insurance was having trouble paying, and he wanted to know how much it cost and why we were charging the patient. So I sent that to the university higher-ups, and they responded back said, don't respond to it. I cannot discuss a patient's finances or costs. If he was a doctor caring for that patient and called me, that's totally different. The reason there are patient stories in this book is because the patients gave written consent and co-developed it with me. I cannot just do something like that on my own. That's unethical. You know, let the data speak for itself and move forward.
0: The key allegation that he makes, I think, is on the reporting of patient deaths basically he alleges that two out of four patient deaths were reported but later than they should have been
1: so this was an on, on a fda site visit and we did report but the problem is we didn't know because the family hadn't gotten back to us seven days after it had happened so we're late in reporting but the truth is we published all these deaths and causes of deaths. We've published everything. And it was in reporting to the FDA, but the truth is I didn't have to go through the FDA. I did it voluntarily. The FDA has no regulation over this because there is no drug that's manufactured to give anybody. I didn't need to, but I still did. You know, if you don't know within seven days, of course you're gonna be late within, with reporting that. But it, in the publications we published, it's all there. Every death that has happened has been reported. All the publications were accurate. Nothing was recommended to be changed in any protocol. No patient was felt to be hurt by the study. Those deaths were disease-related and a different disease, but it was voluntary. I didn't ever need to submit to the FDA, and in no way did they recommend any changes in the treatments.
0: So, Richard, how would you like to see the field develop over the next 10 years?
1: Gosh, you know, someone asked me a long time ago, 25 years ago, how long it it take me to get these results in autoimmune disease? I thought it'd take five years. <laughs> it takes a lot longer. Than that you sounds thinking. very
0: optimistic.
1: I think the field is now, with the data out there and what's going on, and with patients themselves being informed, is more likely to move forward. I've even had the other extreme where a lawyer who had a lawyer friend who I transplanted, saw the change in his friend, and then said, this is going to be as big as penicillin. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but it's going to change the natural history of these diseases, just getting the information out, making people informed. So I think this that's thats what's going to happen. But for me, it's, what's exciting is developing new things, taking an idea in your head and seeing it change this world. It's getting other people to understand it the right way and do it the right way. But I want to develop this new idea we have with IPS for aging and degenerative diseases. Basically, we can make you know mice live longer. I call it My Flowers for Alzheimers" Experiment. That's a fantastic book. Oh, I love that book, yeah.
0: Isn't it brilliant?
1: Yes. I'm glad you read it. Most people, when I say that, look at me I they don't know what I'm talking about. So, no, no, it's a great book. But we have to prove it. It's a different set of obstacles. So it's kind of a little crazy that at this point in my life, in my age, I'm taking on a whole new... Kind of a set of obstacles. But, you know, that's what's fun. That's what I love doing is developing these new things and making an idea change the world. And that's why, you know, I want to spend what time I have left to develop that IPS secondarily to see the uh, autoimmune go forward in the right direction during its teenage years. You just can't have the time like I used to have where I was there 24 7 and autoimmune because I want to develop and see this IPS. I think it can have another major impact. After that, I'll be ready to just get a catamaran and sail around the world <laughs> and get lost.
0: <laughs> well you might need some of the regeneration.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Procedures true.
0: yourself at that yeah. stage. Absolutely. Richard, thank you so much indeed for talking today. Fascinating.
1: No, thank you so much. You probe good questions.
0: Well thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you, Richard. Yeah. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the podcast. Many thanks for listening. And a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker and sign up to the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now.